The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we again echo the testimony of the psalmist. At, at least that's what we want to have um, expressed toward you with all sincerity, that we, we love your law, that we love your word. Uh, we've seen throughout the, the walking and, uh, and engagement with Psalm 119 that those words are not strange for the psalmist. That they're repeated in such a, a rich diversity and with uh, just this profound earnest affection and longing and desire, the being greatly distressed from a, a lack of attentiveness to the scriptures, a desire to see them, to hear them, to walk with you, to please you. Lord, we want to, to mimic that kind of faithfulness. We want to hear uh, the testimony that's expressed uh, th- through your word, but by this uh, the psalmist and and consider what where do our affections lie and how do they impact our lives and our thinking and our conduct? How do they impact our engagements with this world that is uh, no has no shortage of distraction and uh, even attractive uh, distractions, things that um, in the moment are, are quite satisfying or um, pass the time in a, a way that uh, can be an enjoyable. Some things which morally are neutral outside of the fact that they may be tr- detracting from, from greater things. And uh, certainly there's a place for rest and there's a place to um, even to, rec- uh, to have recreation, but Lord, would you invigorate that appetite within us that uh, we could testify again with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law, how I love your word. It's my delight. It's what I am consumed by as I, as I rise up and as I lie down. And it's that kind of uh, affection and that kind of um, saturation of uh, attention that's necessary for the work that we've been called to in Jude. Uh, to, to properly contend for the faith, we have to have a, a, an understanding of the faith. We need to, to know and to cherish the range of doctrines and truths that have been preserved and passed on to us. We need to be good students of the scripture and be uh, faithful to have been genuinely transformed by them and to, to desire that their integrity be upheld, that it be carried out and applied through our lives. We think about the, the nature of those who have crept in and who have mocked and who uh, make little of your truth. Their, their assaults are with words. That's, it's very clear. It's plain enough. And their assaults are on the, the clarity of truth, but it expresses itself in, in just the plainest of conduct, um, how they how they walk and how they live and how they engage and how they speak. And so, Lord, as we do seek to contend for the faith, earnestly contend for the faith that's been once for all handed down to the saints, may we do so in a way that, again, expresses an affection for your word that clearly um, it spills out and is demonstrated through the patterns of our life that it would be different. And, Lord, we pray the same for your church throughout the world and that would include those who are in Iran, and um, we think about um, just uh, the the burden of a Muslim majority nation. And I, I think about um, peers that um, in, in college that I had whose parents would be in a a Muslim majority or a Muslim heavily influenced uh, nation, and and they would speak about they're they're very moral in terms of a lot of their conduct, and they they look at the West in a way, and they just see how vulgar our entertainment is and how vulgar 
what's broadcast to the world is is to other people and how we conduct ourselves so in such a lewd and loose way. Um, so may those who are genuinely in Christ um, demonstrate that there's a, a superiority not to their works or even to their morality, which we'd expect, but that their works and their conduct are distinct because of the transformative work of the Spirit of God, something that even the most morally upright person outside of Christ can't put their hands around. And just to, the, to recognize and oppress their neighbor, to oppress their friends or family members, that there's something more satisfying and a more genuine and enduring hope outside of Islam. And so we pray, Lord, for those who are brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran. And again, we can't imagine the, the, the burdens that they carry. And so we ask, give them the grace to persevere and to, to again, to adorn the gospel, to put these things on display, to also contend earnestly for the faith, and certainly to do so when it's uh, perverted and challenged, especially in a context when that's a, that could so uh, solely the, the reputation of Christ in a way that is not fitting, never is fitting, but certainly can do a unique damage in that kind of context. And Lord, we with this, again, we want to be found faithful. Um, we are in a context in which... Um, Certainly there's antagonism toward gospel matters. Certainly there's an antagonism toward the things of the Lord. Uh, but we do have such an incredible degree of, of liberty to speak still, to act in ways that are faithful. Um, help us, Lord, to, to capitalize on that and to, to honor you in that. And again, to, to take this one last look. It won't be the final look in that we're continuing to labor in the scriptures, wherever that may take us, but this one last look at Jude for now. And as we think about that high calling and how it expressed itself with the range of commands to keep ourselves and to keep one another, and Lord, would you help us to see how it comes to a proper culmination now? Um, and may our lives replicate not only the psalmist but Jude in this, that as we see all these things, as we see a, a, a perspective that you would have for us in our charge and our commands, that it would provoke us to uh, sp not spontaneous, but uh, an eruption of, of praise to you. That's where Jude ended. He couldn't, I don't think he could have properly restrained himself. He had to, to finish with a, an explosive thanksgiving and glory to God, and that's where we want to be. And so, Lord, would you help us, we pray. And uh, help me to teach clearly, for your people to hear well, for all of us to be transformed as we submit ourselves to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just now, and as in just now, you knew that I was closing my participation in our corporate prayer time because I did a few things, right? And it wasn't because I had a formula to follow, um, but you recognize, you picked up on some cues, some patterns of habit and conduct. So, I formally recognized that I was praying in Jesus' name. I think that's a good thing. That's proper as we pray to recognize that we're praying in Jesus' name, and then I finished with, Amen. So you knew, okay, he's done. He finished praying, and now we're going to engage in the, the message, as it were. It's uh, an affirmation. So as we gave that amen, it was, a, it was a final affirmation that what I've expressed to God before you, that I hold and state to be true, that my petitions were sincere. And so again, we have indicators, indicators that elements of our service are finishing or transitioning. So 
the corporate prayer time's over. If you want to pray, if you even want to pray out loud, we'd probably work with that. But the fact is we have a measure of structure and order, and, and you know, okay, we're transitioning now. Something's changed. We have, again, natural cues and, and natural uh, transitions in our engagement. Well, for several weeks, I finished with a, a cover slide. Um, so I have here, well, here we go. At the beginning, I, I like to have a, an opening slide to kind of this is, we're contending for the faith. This is where we are. This is where we'll be, just a good general transition slide. And then at the very end, I usually have something very similar to this with the passage at the bottom. And it's not so that you would have a cue to begin gathering your things for a fellowship break. I am mindful of our little ones. They're probably wondering, when is this going to stop? And then they see the slide, like, we're getting close. And, and I recognize there's an advantage to that. There's, if everything wasn't as digital as it was, you would see the pastor, what would he do? He'd close his Bible and you knew, okay, there's between two and ten minutes left because he's closed his Bible. And the oven's back up. Well, now here we go again. But I do that. Not because, again, I wanted to um, give you a, a good, firm, okay, this is my part to let you know we're warming up for fellowship time, but because I wanted to remove attention from all of the things, whatever I have on the slides, whatever I think was helpful to you before that, I want to take your attention away from that. I want to bring you to a time of closing our engagement with the text. And that kind of visual cue, even when it's passively applied, probably didn't think about it before now. It doesn't matter if you think about it again, because this will be the last time we have that closing cue, um, um, because we're finishing with Jude. But it can also have unintended consequences. And I thought about this after the matter when I elected not to include a closing cover slide last week. You know, the week that I happened to be going long and was one of the few things, I know I was one of the few things that stood between you and the celebratory picnic. I stood between you and accessing that line to get to Frank and his grill and, and all the, the goodies in the kitchen and, and the, the, the fun and excitement outside. And that lack of a visual cue may have created the presumption that without that slide, I may not finish. I may not even know when to finish myself, but, but I did. And when I did, you ate, you fellowshiped. Some of you found special joy in thoroughly rinsing me with water cannons, but and which also made me wonder that if we were in a, a Pado baptist context, would there be the same urge to soak? Or would it just a few sprinkles be enough? I don't know. <laughs> but there are cues to transitions and closings. There's cues to transitions and closings. And for, for many churches, their services clothed with, uh, close with one of the pastors offering a benediction over the people. Um, a lot of uh, uh, more um, uh, formal... Uh, we. Obviously, we, we have structure, we have uh, different elements that we include, but sometimes of more of a, a high church context, you'll, you'll have a, a closing benediction, a prayerful expression of blessing for the congregation. Maybe the pastor will stand up front, he'll pray, and he'll even raise his hands up and offer a, a benediction for those who are present. And again, a prayerful expression of blessing for them. And something we see modeled a number of times, not necessarily in um, a physical standing before people, but a number of times with the close of various books in the New Testament. There would be a, a benediction, as it were. Some examples would include the following. So we see in 1 Corinthians 16, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And then we see in 2 Corinthians 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Hebrews 13 Grace be with you all. First Peter 5, uh, peace be to you all who are in Christ. And today, we've come to a firm point of transition or closure 
as we've now come again to the conclusion of our study in Jude. And with this, we will engage perhaps the most well-known portion of this book, of this letter, Jude's doxology, which again is a distinct element from a benediction. So again, prayerful blessing upon a people, whether it be in a formal context like this in a congregation and people seated before a teacher or be at the closing of a letter, that's a benediction, which is a fitting conclusion to an experience, a letter, a writing, and a teaching engagement. But Jude does something different. He doesn't give a benediction. He gives a doxology, which has a view, whereas the, the benediction has a view toward blessing the people present or the people reading. A doxology has a view toward blessing God. And there's a distinction in that. It's an eruption of uh, worshipful praise centered on the glory of God that may or may not serve as a transition or conclusion. It, it won't necessarily be at the end of every book. It's not necessarily, I think Romans does it at the end of the book, maybe one or two others, but it doesn't necessarily cue the end of a book. It may just be at a point where it serves as a transition or a conclusion of a given section as well. But most plainly, it expresses something that happened with the author. Again, whether they're finishing the letter, finishing a section, they've come to the point where they just have to pause and they just erupt in declaring the excellencies of God. It's, it's gotten too great for them not to give immediate declaration to, that, uh, to these wonders and glories of God in that moment. They just they can't restrain themselves, as it were. They just have to stop and, and declare these things, even on pen on paper there. So after laboring in the necessary call to contend, and the range of ways that should, um, that should be thought through and acted upon, Jude finally does the same thing here in his letter. He's, he's, he's written, you've got to contend for the faith. He's, he's worked that out. He's, he's, he's wrestled before us on paper. He's, he's, he's flushed it out in various commands. And now what does he do? He finally just erupts in worshipful declaration of God's glory, stating, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, for those of you who have had the opportunity to walk through the entirety of this letter with us, and even for those who have just joined us maybe along the way, even as recently as last week, I hope that this uh, well-known doxology, again, you may not even know, oh, that came from Jude, but you've probably heard it. I hope that this well-known doxology is starting to be heard a little bit differently, and, and even will be more so today. Because Jude was not simply writing a, a masterful tagline for us to recite at the conclusion of services or in our reaching for a, a beautifully stated doxology. Again, that's how Jude's often cited. Somebody's thinking, what's that really good doxology? Now, they're, they're all good, but that one, that one. Well, Jude probably is that one. So he wasn't saying, let's give something to put in their pocket to draw from when they're really trying to solicit great praise to God. I don't think you would object to that. I think you'd be quite encouraged by that. But rather, his focus was he was masterfully bringing the whole of his letter to a proper culmination. A culmination that was informed by how he introduced himself and his recipients in verses 1 and 2. 
by his call to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints in verses 3 and 4, by his articulating the foundations for righteous judgment in verses 5 through 7, by his indictment of the godless invaders in verses 8 through 13, by his affirming the surety of God's righteous judgment in verses 14 through 16, by his commands that filled out the charge of contending for the faith in verses 17 through 23, and then with that, in that section, 17 to 23, which we've given a number of weeks to recently, we had the first two commands being applied toward you keeping yourself. That's what you keep yourself. And it's expressed why, uh, by first, the command to remember, remember the apostolic warning about mockers. And then secondly, the command to keeping yourselves in the love of God. And then we had the final three commands that we looked at last week uh, being applied toward you keeping others. So again, you keep yourself. And now you keep others as well. Commands to have mercy, to save, and to have mercy with fear. All of these elements and their development throughout the letter are brought to bear on this doxology. So I want you to see, as you see, verses 24 and 25, you need to have all this in mind. Jude did. He didn't just write a letter, put it down, be like, I think this would be really memorable to finish with this. And you know what? It'll give something people who are like, oh, that's a really great passage. Maybe they'll read the rest of the letter. He had all of this in view as he articulated this letter and articulated, excuse me, this doxology. All of these elements and their development throughout the letter were brought to bear on this doxology. So while there are a range of passages also that, that have that capacity to stand alone, and Jude's doxology certainly does, and they express truth in a powerful, moving way, Hearing them in their context brings a fit and necessary richness to them. And I would say, again, especially doxology. So we're mindful of that with Jude. He brought all this to bear. Does it stand alone? Yes. Does it stand alone extraordinarily well? Yes. But there's a context to it, to these micro-eruptions of giving God glory through thanksgiving, praise, and righteous awe of his person, his works, and his ways. And I think that's really important because, again, it's not just a... Well, it's been, you know, some of you have smartwatches, smartphones, smart microwaves, I don't know, whatever, but uh, it tells you to do something at a given time. So mine will say, hey, you know what, it's been this many, you need to take this many more steps this hour. Some of you, it tells you you need to stand and you're standing already. Some of them maybe say you need to sing, I don't know, whatever, but they're, they're provoking you. And Jude wasn't being provoked necessarily by anything less than the magnificence of all that he had been writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God to that moment. And then when he came to that point, all that context informed it, and it's the same with every other doxology. It's not that just, well, it's been this long, it's, this, it's been um, this formula that you need to follow, but an eruption of praise based off of the context. So with this in view, I want to provide you some examples of some of the explosive hallelujahs, as it were, that are peppered throughout the New Testament. Just a few of them, there's several. So in Romans 9, verses, uh, excuse me, chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, we recognize Paul's doing something there, right? There's a context. It's not just so that some theological camps can run to the first part, some can run to the last part, and then somebody figure out who the middle belongs to. Romans 9 through 11 is communicating something. Paul is unpacking an intensive engagement of reconciling the increasingly Gentile presence and balance within the church and the unbelief that persists among so many of the Jews. There's a lot of tension that he's trying to unpack there, trying to understand why, why are the Jewish people in unbelief? Why are these Gentiles coming to faith in this, in this way, that the weight and the balance of the church is transforming? Well, the Jews, who, like Paul, were the recipients and heirs to the rich range of promises that fill the scriptures. That's part of what he had in mind. It's part of what uniquely encouraged him. 
But they were at this time predominantly, as they continue to be, resisting their Messiah and the salvation he brings, the supermajority, the overwhelming. And for Paul, this was a heartbreaking reality. It's how he starts off chapter 9, right? I would wish myself accursed for my kinsmen. And so he starts off with this weight of, of uh, debt for his beloved people, and yet he finishes the sweep of 9, 10, 11 with a rich hope and the promises that the Lord has and will remain faithful to his covenant promises to include the salvation of Israel. And so he does, goes from this full sweep of just being absolutely heartbroken to articulating the what's and the why's and the how's, God's faithfulness, and then what does he do? It drives him again into the deep expressions of the mercy of God and the salvation of the Gentiles and ultimately the salvation of the Jews as well. And he ends with an explosion of praise to God when he reflects on this and states, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who, can become, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So again, you could read that doxology. You could be like, yes, that's truth rich, magnificently impactful. But when you understand Romans 9, 10, 11, now you get why this guy just couldn't restrain himself. Then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we read of the final exhortations and instructions that Paul was giving Timothy in his letter. And we note that he took a pause and a rather intensive engagement when he came to speaking of Christ's return. Not just a hobby of Paul, it was a major emphasis of Paul. And he erupts into a small doxology before continuing on with his exhortations and charges for Timothy. So once more, speaking of Christ's return, Paul is provoked to worshipfully declare he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal might. Amen. There's a context to that. Timothy was being written, uh, uh, he was writing to Timothy, this is the, the coming to the close of his life, and he has a view to Christ's return, and he just erupts to this is the glorious God that we worship and that we are centering ourselves on and that gives bearing not only to our hope, but the nature of the charges that Timothy is receiving from Paul. And then there's one more that I hope many of you, I know not everybody, but many of you will remember from our work in 2 Peter. I uh, filled this one's context out by simply providing the preceding verse, which summarily covers much of the book's development and focus. So in 2 Peter um, verses, uh, or chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, we read, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that mockers will come in their mocking, knowing that they're going to undermine the integrity of the scriptures and the authority of the scriptures, and they're going to invade Christ's church. Sounds very familiar because Peter said they're coming, Jude said they came. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now he slides over into doxology. Remember these things. You've got to remember them. Remember... Remember that he pressed them to remember multiple times through the book, and then he finally culminates with, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So we can plainly see that Peter's doxology at the conclusion of his letter is it's a little bit more concise, isn't it? I, had to, I gave two verses to even provide context there, but it's very concise, very concise. Uh, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Especially, again, if you, if you just take it alone. Again, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Very, very short. Now, 
keep that in mind. Keep that in mind for a moment because over the course of our study in Jude, we have noted many comparisons between 2 Peter and Jude. There's good reason for that. These books are, are plainly, I would say, are to be viewed together. Uh, they, they have a unique relationship, Jude being the natural follow-up to 2 Peter. So with this relationship in mind, consider a comparison of the two letters closing doxologies. And when you do, you'll see that Jude's closing doxology is significantly fuller than Peter's closing doxology, which I would conclude was simply a matter of, of style and purpose. So we don't need to compare like, well, how long is this doxology and, and who was more emphatic in their worship and delighting in God? So it's not a matter of how long they are. That's not what I want to draw to your attention, but of greater interest in these two letters closing doxologies is how they reflect the completion of their respective books, thematic development of the believer's engagement of the clandestine offender, the false teachers, the mockers. They both address that company. They both address the believer's engagement of the clandestine offender, the false teachers, and the mockers, but they close differently, and their doxologies reflect that. So with this in view, we observe the following. Peter finished his letter with two final commands. They're right there in the passage and an associated warning. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness. And then the second command, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So be on your guard and grow lest you be carried away and fail. That's how Peter finishes. That's a good way for Peter to finish. He's, he's anticipating the threat to come. So be on your guard. Grow, because there's a threat. That's how he finishes, and that informs his doxology. By contrast, Jude finished with a cluster of five commands filling out the call to contend for the faith, commands that express the work of keeping oneself and the work of keeping one another, after which he spends the first half of his doxology extolling God's great work in doing what? And keeping his own. Before finishing with a final great exaltation of God's eternal glory. That's because of how Jude developed the same basic subject matter. Because it was, Peter, they're coming, there's a threat. Respond to the threat accordingly and know the danger. Jude, they've come, respond this way, but know something. Christ will keep his own. Two different doxologies, major thematic similarities, but they're driven to different articulations of the glory of God in these things. So both authors, Peter and Jude, are finishing with eruptions of praise to God, but frame it with a culminating view to their respective messages. Now, let me demonstrate this for you in Jude by way of um, reducing his doxology to its core. We could pare it down maybe even more to say, now to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Or perhaps we could reduce it down even further and just say, to him be all glory forever. Amen. Now, this would make for an extremely concise and accurate and worthy doxology, but not the one that Jude penned, at least not in its proper entirety. Now, Whereas my word count could perhaps be reduced to make me more clear or concise. I'll let someone else decide and debate that one. Jude's words were indispensable. There was nothing that, he didn't just flesh it out to, to fill it out. Like, I want to make my doxology longer than Peter. Or I, want it, I want it to be more full or comprehensive. His words were indispensable in what the Spirit of God would have for us here. 
And while many of his descriptions in the letter were full and at times poetic and clearly intentionally structured to include, remember those clusters of three that we even saw last week, we also recognize that he wrote with a clear measure of decisive urgency. And when you write with a clear decisive urgency, you don't just fill things out. You mean everything you say and you say it very carefully. So that decisive urgency can be observed by not only the relative brevity of this letter, it's only 25 verses, but by the fact that he had originally set out to write for a different purpose, but was compelled to address a matter of more immediate need. Again, the immediate need of this and the circumstances provoked a, a, a redirect. You don't fill out your language in that context. You're concise, you're clear. And if you add things, it's because they were necessary and invaluable to the process of what you're communicating. Again, a matter that he framed around um, this immediate need was a matter that he framed around a central charge, which employs the language also of exhortation, a, a call for an earnest response. That's the kind of context in which you, again, are usually pressed to be especially concise. It's also likely a reason that the only personal reference he makes in this letter is about James, and that not even to express greetings or to share otherwise personal exchanges, but to clarify the integrity and authority of his own authorship. So the fact that he spent just under 10% of his brief intensive letter closing it as he did tells us something. And it's more than just that he finished with an eruption of praise to God or that doxologies make for con great conclusions. And we could have the discussion, benediction or doxology? That's not the issue. Because this one is reasonably, again, long, long for doxology. And we'll see that it's serving to drive us to something. There was a context and there's a reason. And it was driving us to a complementary finish, not simply to the letter broadly, but to the charge to contend for the faith and the commands that have fleshed that out. Commands that have a view to keeping oneself and to keeping others through the end of our sojourning. Now, we've already covered a good bit. That was kind of introduction, um, as it were, um, but we've already covered a good bit by way of introducing the doxology but what I just established is very important in you properly appreciating it. So let me speak to that once more because the elements themselves are not especially complicated or challenging. You can look at this doxology and be like, I got it. This is a, what I would call a face value passage. Now we would argue for what's called the perspicuity of the scriptures, the clarity of the scriptures, but there are times that I am teaching a text and the week before I look at it and I think, boy, this is going to be a long, hard week. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, it's one thing to, to read it, to think about it. It's another to be able to unpack it. It's hard sometimes. But this would, I would say this one's very much a face value passage, one that you can pick up. You can just read it cold and have a good, really good appreciation of it and naturally draw a lot of benefit from its content and flow. So if you had no context whatsoever, you could still summarize this as a magnificent eruption of worshipful praise to God, and you would be right. If that was your, if I just quizzed you and said, what's Jude 1, 24, 25, tell me about it. You look at your Bible, it's an eruption of magnificent praise to God. Be like, yeah, you got it. You know it. But there's a lot more to it, isn't there? You'd be right, but also tragically deficient because you do have the context and that context is invaluable. And the context of this doxology has the entirety of the weight of the letter bearing on it. Not just a section, not just a moment, but the entirety of the letter 
But having worked through this letter, we can now reduce, uh, we can reduce how we express the weight of this letter to the following. So we can be more concise with how we express the letter. We could say, well, the letter and what it's driving to here is that Jude provided a call to contend earnestly for the faith. That's the core of the letter. That call to contend had a view to ungodly persons having crept into the church and doing its members harm. That call to contend was therefore fleshed out in five final commands that centered on keeping oneself and keeping others namely keeping oneself and others tethered to the faith, the body of doctrine and truth that has been provided to us through the scriptures, which will produce lives of faithfulness before the Lord. You got the book of Jude with that. So in view of these things, the call to contend, keeping yourselves, keeping others, uh, Jude drives his letter to an explosively magnificent finish, a doxology that is erupting in worshipful praise to God who keeps his own. That's what this doxology is going to drive us to. It's a, it's a worshipful praise to God who keeps his own. A matter that Jude begins speaking to by way of directing our attention to the Lord and his capacity to act in ways that supersede our own. He begins, now to him who is able. And interestingly, the term translated here as now, so now to him who is able is the same as the term for but. And Jude's addressing the beloved in verses 17 and 20, a matter worthy of attention because whereas those are redirects, remember, he's talking about the ungodly, but you, beloved, then he talks about a little bit of the ungodly, but you, beloved, um, here we have, but to him. So, but you, beloved, but you, beloved, but to him. So there's a small redirect that I think I don't want us to miss there, or it's commonly translated again, now to him. But I want you to see that. I want you to see that a focus on the beloved, a focus on the beloved, but down to him. We're going to shift our attention just ever so slightly to the Lord uh, as the primary person of emphasis. Having secured this redirect, as it were, Jude goes on to identify him as God, the only God, our Savior. So directing our attention to God, Jude begins by affirming that he is able, that God has the inherent capability to do what he desires to accomplish, uh, to do what he desires to accomplish, namely to keep to keep his beloved. And I know that might sound, well, that's extraordinarily elementary, but it's extraordinarily important and critical to appreciate. He is able. What is he able to do? He's able to keep his beloved. An act that we cannot even do for ourselves without the spirit of God's empowerment. Yes, we've been commanded to keep yourselves in the love of God, but you can just throw that out if you don't have the spirit of God empowering you. Therefore, the view to the letter's context, Jude begins here by extolling the excellencies of God who has the absolute and indisputable capacity to act and to do as he desires, a reality that affirms that we establish uh, a, re a reality that affirms what we established a few weeks ago, the, the, the sound of contending. Do you remember what is the sound of contending? It's prayer. Very good. It's our crying out to and our petitioning that he who can keep. He who is able to keep, that he will do just that. That's why prayer is the sound, as it were, of contending. That he will keep us, that he will complete us in Christ, that he will be pleased to receive glory through our being made like him and found fit for his glorious presence. And we respond by crying out with confidence in prayer as we contend because he is able. 
Further, the fact that God is able or has the capacity to act and do as he pleases is among the reasons that our first command in the coming alongside of others that we looked at last week and they're being kept is not some lesser matter, namely our having mercy in some who are doubting. And why is that not a lesser matter? Because in some measure or another, doubting has introduced a challenge to God's desire, if not ability, to do as he says. It's challenging that he is able to include his keeping and completing the work that he has begun in his beloved. Doubting is challenging the glory of God that's being exalted in this moment. Is he really able, or is he able to at least keep me? And he is. This is a work that Jude goes on to express in two parts, in keeping us from stumbling and in making us fit for his presence. So this is the means by which he is able, or this is the exercising of God's ability. And, And again, keeping us from stumbling and making us fit for his presence. So the first of these expresses our present experience, to keep you from stumbling. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. And now we've come to that precious key term, um, have we not? And that is to keep. We've seen that all throughout the book. I, I was looking back at my little um, introductory message, some of the notes there, and the little spider web of major themes that I posted up there for you. I know some of them were small and hard to follow, but one of those major themes was keeping It was so important. I warned you to get it early, and we've seen it all throughout, and here it is once more. But perhaps some of you have done some word studies. You've you've exercised your uh, skill with maybe the thick Strong's Concordance or using a computer program or just your Greek New Testaments or whatever the case may be, and you've looked up this word for for keep, and you've seen how Jude uses it, and you have some questions here. And that's okay. These are good questions. Namely, why does he use a different term for keep here? Because in verse one, or verses 1, 6, 13, 21, they all have varying uses of a term that translates keep or kept and reserved to include the opening affirmation that we are kept for Jesus Christ. That's all the same term that we've looked at all through this letter. Christ keeping his own and even keeping those under judgment who are rejecting him. And the command that we keep ourselves is that same term. Christ will keep, verse 1, you keep yourselves, verse uh, what 21. But here we have another term that is being translated for keep, a term that's translated to express to keep, to, to preserve, to, to safely maintain. And it's often used to express the act of guarding as by an officer or a soldier. So while breaking from his singular term for keep, Jude maintains the thematic emphasis that he's been developing up to this point and would appear to be putting a, I would say, a punctuated emphasis on God's safekeeping, God's guard, and God's watching over his beloved, affirming that his keeping is unique as his has the ability to be executed with absolute surety, a matter that Paul expressed um, with great comfort as he wrote to Timothy at the end of his life and ministry, at the end of Paul's life and ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 1, we read, Therefore do not be ashamed either of the witness about our Lord or me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which he has given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been manifested by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am convinced 
He's what? He's able to guard. He's able to keep. He's able to make safe what I've entrusted to him until that day. So again, Paul, Paul was confident in the in, in terms of the, the the his and the gospel provided the, the gospel provided him absolute assurance of God's guarding and keeping him. But we need not miss that Jude fills out this statement on being kept or guarded from something specific here. We're kept, we're guarded, we're maintained, we're preserved in view of something very specific, namely from stumbling. And with this, I hope another beloved passage is coming to mind for many of you who are with us as we work through 2 Peter, specifically chapter 1 of that book where Peter made a most extraordinary statement. In 2 Peter chapter um, 1 verse 10, where he states, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure, for in doing these things you will never stumble. These things being the supplying of your faith with moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and agape love. And in doing such things, you will not stumble or stumble so as to fall and thereby fail to finish your race. The very thing that Peter finishes his letter with and says, be careful, be careful, there's a threat to this. But if you do these things, there's not a threat. So be found faithful. Again, a matter that's drawn out in the very next verse of 2 Peter chapter 1. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses now 10 and 11, we read, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure, for in doing these things you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And so we see a very clear connection to that stumbling so as not to fail. Now we come to Jude. With a view to the second part of this opening statement in Jude's doxology, namely that God will also make us fit to stand in his glorious presence, I would argue that we need to see these two things together. Namely, our being kept or guarded from stumbling is a principal means by which we are made fit to stand. He is able to keep you from uh, stumbling and he's able to make you stand before his glory. And those two things are interrelated. You're not stumbling makes you fit to stand. But in my drawing from 2 Peter, I think a fair question would be as well, have I diluted the special emphasis that Jude was developing that it's God who keeps and guards so that we will not stumble? Because, you know, when I go back to 2 Peter, I'm really pressing you to do these things. You need to act. You need to be faithful. So have I diminished Jude's precious emphasis that God keeps, he's able to keep you from stumbling, and also to make you stand before him blameless and with great joy? Well, No. Because Jude's not rejoicing in God's work of keeping us as though it were independent of what he's called and commanded us to in both 2 Peter and here in Jude. Therefore, we need not disassociate God's act of keeping us from our own pursuit of faithfulness. Because while we most certainly rejoice that God is independently able to do and act as he pleases, we need not overlook that he exercises his ability to act in no small part by empowering us to participate in this work. We who cannot independently act for a lack of capacity are commanded to participate in the work of keeping because God, who can independently act because he is able, chooses to act through us to accomplish what is beyond our ability to do for ourselves or others. And Jude sees this. He gets this. He sees that we were just issued a cluster of commands to which you could honestly respond to those five commands. You could respond to remember. You could respond to keep yourselves in the love of God, to have mercy, to save some, and have mercy with fear on others. And you could 
honestly respond, Lord, I cannot. I can't do that. I am not able. And that would be a proper finish to that statement. And yet we cannot respond that way because Jude states, he who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy has called and has now enabled you to do this work. And so he's not just giving a final point to say, ah, here's the commands. I've given them to you. I've given you too much, but don't worry. God's going to help you. He's saying, here's the commands. Now, thanks be to God because he is able. It's a worshipful response. And seeing this Jude again, and he erupts with worshipful praise to God because again, God is able. And with this, we come to the second half of this portion of the doxology. To him who is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Able to make you stand or establish you in the presence of his glory or before him. As we see it expressed in the terms, two other usages which are expressing the same conclusion that Jude is bringing us to here. We see this in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Colossians 1.22, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So we see that Jude and also Paul are expressing the end for which we are kept. This is why you are kept, that we who are in Christ will be made fit to stand in the presence of his glory. And not only to stand in the presence of his glory, but blameless with great joy. A very simple statement that we cannot properly get our minds around. You can read it. You could recite it. You can memorize it. If I said, you can't go to fellowship time until you've memorized that, you could do it. It's very simple. You can't go to fellowship time unless you can answer some questions about it. You could do it. It's simple. I understand that. The simple language, simple concept. But I know that every one of you know yourselves well enough that you should be provoked to the point of trembling and utter confusion at this statement that I would stand before the presence of God's glory blameless and with great joy? Or more plainly say that you should be undone at the prospect of standing before God in the presence of his glory. That would be a proper reality. Simple statement, but it should almost cause you to be like, wait a second, did he say that? Is that true? How? I know myself. I know my circumstances. I know my heart. I can't stand before God's presence and his glory blameless with great joy. You know, most people... If we just pause and said, you know what, I'm tired. Somebody else tag in. You can read my notes. You can use my PowerPoint, do whatever. You can say something else. They'd be like, nope, not going to do it. There are exceptions. Some people just really enjoy being in front of other people. But for the most part, most people are intimidated to, to, to stand before their peers, aren't they? They're just not excited about it. It's supposedly still one of the number one fears or high fears, even though now they live broadcast everything before the world. But... Much less can you imagine having to stand before a large crowd. But Jude's stating something more magnificent than this, isn't he? Jude states that we will stand before God in his glory. Before God in his glory, that's, that's an undoing. But Jude states this is not an expression of terror, but in a context of erupting in praise to God. He's not saying, sorry, folks, it's coming. He's saying, we're going to be ready. It's going to happen. He's worshiping. Because he who is able will make you fit to stand before his glory and to do so blamelessly with great joy. Now, the term blameless, it's also striking because it's one 
we are well acquainted with in the context of uh, the necessary qualifications for an acceptable object of, of sacrifice for worship, especially in the Old Testament uh, worship structure. Uh, therefore, it's a term used throughout the Old Testament when speaking to these matters, matters of acceptable sacrifices to the Lord because of what is required. It was that it was to be blameless, without spot or wrinkle or, or anything deficient or, or wrong with it, anything that would blemish it. And in turn, this rightfully directs the expectation and the realization of Christ's own sacrifice as one who was blameless. We rejoice in that. We, we recognize the necessity of the blameless sacrifice, and we tie that properly to the blamelessness of Christ as, as the sacrificial lamb of God. But then we go on to recognize that being blameless or spotless expressed not only what was necessary of the sacrifices, it's not only what was true of Christ, but it's also what in Christ will be true of us too. He has been and will continue working a work in his people so that we will be blameless before him again because he is able. We will stand in the presence of God's glory blameless without the stain of sin, without, the, without blemish or fault, but, aban- uh, but a- abounding in joy in the presence of God. And these are truths they're not simply ideals. Like, wouldn't that be great? You know, people, they, they, they sing their little romance songs and they're just artificially inflated and silly ideals and they have their stories and they read books and watch movies about ideals. This is not an ideal to make you feel better about your relationship with God. It's a fact that if you're in Christ, this is what he is doing because he's able. Magnificent expressions of truths that have been consistently affirmed for us as well. We saw this earlier and this is so plainly stated as Paul spoke to, again, our election in Christ in Ephesians 1. And we'll see a little bit more here. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. To what end? That we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. An identity that he returns to later in the letter uh, to the Ephesians when speaking of Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. So in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Again, because he's able, he will accomplish these things. So we see the means of this great surety. Christ has loved his church and has given himself for her, sanctifying her, cleansing her, and completing her so that we would be holy and blameless before him. And in Colossians, we see, that our, uh, we see that clear union of being kept and keeping ourselves, both of which are sureties of our redemption and its completion. Colossians uh, chapter 2 Verses 21 to 23, and although you formerly you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So once more, to be clear, Jude is extolling God who is not only able, but indeed who will 
keep us from stumbling and make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. A great joy that will be strengthened by present sorrows and struggles that mark our uh, mark the, the path as it does uh, for all contending sojourners, just as Peter's made plain to us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, but to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, when we're made to stand before him blameless and with great joy, you may rejoice with exultation. So present sufferings yielding to future glory. Remember, 1 Peter speaking to these things as well. Now, if I've not done my job, and if you're not... Uh, provoked to utter humility and absolute worshipful joy at this time, then I'm not sure you're connecting the dots just yet. So let me lean into this just a little bit more. Um, and I want you to consider something. Consider the magnificence of, of this statement that you, because God is able, you will stand before his presence if you're in Christ. I want to qualify that. If you're in Christ, you will stand in his presence, his, his glorious presence, blameless and great joy. You need to hold that in mind and think about something. Think back to Israel at Mount Sinai. Think about the generation of the Israelites and what they experienced. They were a people that outside of Noah's family and their deliverance through the ark had seen the most extraordinary expression of salvation in history to that time. And you know, the Lord constantly makes reference back to with a strong arm. I delivered my people out of Egypt and I did these things. It was a huge deal. Don't lose sight of that. When Yahweh drew out an entire people from within a terribly powerful and oppressive nation by way of first putting his own glory on display through a series of 10 plagues, but not just 10 plagues that happened to inflict Egypt, but 10 miraculous plagues that shamed Egypt and their gods, putting Yahweh's glory on magnificent display as he delivered his people whom he went on to lead by a pillar of fire and a cloud a leading of his people that included the parting of the sea, the supernatural provision of sustenance as they traveled to their promised land, a leading that quickly brought this people on whom Yahweh had set his affection to Mount Sinai. Now, what happens there? Well, as a people having experienced all such things and who, who were the object of Yahweh's affection, of um, they were told something when they got to Mount Sinai. So they, they of all peoples, were so unique they saw God's glory in ways that no other people had ever seen. They had benefited in ways that nobody had ever had benefited. And they're being brought to Mount Sinai, and they get there, and they're told something. Do not touch this mountain. Because though you will be charged to make yourselves holy for this unique meeting, this when God's special presence joins you, as it were, on top of this mountain, if you are, uh, even though you're being made to be uh, holy, you're still not fit to approach his presence. Now think about our standing and listen to this portion of Exodus 19. Yahweh also said to Moses, go to the people and set them apart as holy today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Don't touch, don't, don't approach, don't touch. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or surely shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and set the people apart as holy. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. 
So it happened on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes or th- lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder and Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people lest they break through to see or to Yahweh to see and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to Yahweh set themselves apart as holy lest Yahweh break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds about the mountain and set it apart as holy. Then Yahweh said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break out against them. That generation understood the terrifying magnificence of the glory of God, right? I think that's indisputable. In that moment, they saw and heard and experienced things that were unlike anybody else had seen, heard, or experienced. And so could you imagine this generation of people, or even Moses himself, hearing what Jude says here? That we have the prospect of not stumbling over the foolishness of sin or the besetting weakness it inflicts upon men, and that we will be made fit to stand in the presence of God's glory. They couldn't approach the mountain, and Jude's saying, you will behold his presence, blameless and with joy. That's extraordinary. They consecrated themselves, and yet they could not so much as again touch the mountain, and yet we are assured of such things as expressed here by Jude and others. Or you could imagine Isaiah, who intimately felt the weight of God's magnificent presence at his supernatural commissioning, as recorded in Isaiah 6, 1-7, hearing such truths. Can you imagine him hearing what Jude said to us? He was absolutely undone. He probably would find our lack of crippling awe rather curious. He'd probably conclude we just don't get it, wondering if we really even appreciated exactly what was being said. So when we finally grasp what Jude is stating here, we may well not be, sh- uh, we, we may well not be sure if we want to, to laugh or cry. What do we do? How do we even respond? But what will be clear is that we will want to worship. That's what Jude's provoking us to, if we hear him correctly. To join Jude in erupting praise to God, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, that statement, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, um, is, uh, that identification is the only way that the um, first half of this doxology even works, right? That the only God is our Savior through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you can experience what God is able to do, because he does it for who? He does it for those whom he has redeemed. And how has he redeemed them? He's redeemed them through the Son. But Jude did not state this to make his doxology logically consistent. He didn't just give it to us for that reason, but rather to extol our Redeemer. Now, I know that the wording of Jude here might appear peculiar to some, as we rightfully identify Jesus Christ as our Savior, but the apostles also expressed that God the Father is our Savior as well. And of the range of references that speak of God as Savior and Christ as Savior, I think Titus 1 and 3 are likely some of the plainest pairings of these two truths in close proximity. So we see examples from Titus 1 and Titus 3. The first reference, 1, 3 through 4, but at the proper time, 
uh, manifested his word in preaching with which I was entrusted according to the command, commandment of our God, and or, or, excuse me, to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my genuine child according to our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. God our Savior, Christ Jesus our Savior. That's Titus 1. We go into Titus 3, 3 to 6. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works which he did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So again, God our Savior, Christ our Savior. Now, well, I hope that helps us appreciate Jude's language here. I want to press toward a little bit, uh, a little more overt, overt clarity here as well, because we need to understand that salvation is clearly a work of the triune God, a matter we've gave special attention to in the earliest verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, way back when we were in the Passes uh, driveway. So our driveway crew, it's, um, we, we persevered, we sojourned, and we are here. But in that time, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, where we read, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what did we see with that? What did we see just now? Salvation is a work of the triune God, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But there is clearly a unique work accomplished by the Son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. Something Peter makes very clear as well in the continuing that same chapter. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your feudal conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So just as Jude plainly stated, it is God, our savior through Jesus Christ. Therefore, God who has promised redemption from the time that Adam fell has been working out his plan, a plan which reached its climax in Christ who himself is also our God. And it is to him, to God who is able, that Jude rightly ascribes glory, majesty, might, and authority. Again, glory, majesty, might, and authority. With these terms uh, coming to the, the close of the doxology here, Jude blitzes us with four distinguishing elements of worshipfully extolling God's character and his person. Elements that are intimately related to one another, so much so that to find one element, you, you find that you're all but leaning on one of the others in the list. So it's, it's not a real definition to define a term using its own term. Is it okay to use a list to define the terms within the list? They're so connected. It's really hard not to almost borrow from one another. And beyond this, you're almost uh, trying to, to quantify, truthfully, the immeasurable. It'd be like asking one of our, our little ones how big one of the pecan trees are outside, and they just come back with their arms saying, it's this big. Because like the little ones, we're reaching around what we can't fully grasp, but boy, do we know it's big. And so we can work with that. And we're going to try to express it like Jude did. So we're woefully deficient. Here's a small effort to come to you with, with open arms and say it's this big. The Lord is this glorious in these ways. 
to give you, we're going to try to give an idea of the character, the weight, and the nature of how Jude expresses this worshipful praise to God. So here, these terms I would just concisely express as follows. Glory, the radiant expression of God's unparalleled excellencies and holiness. And I'd say if any one of these elements captures all the others in the list, it would probably be glory. You know, doxology by definition includes doxa, glory. It's got a view to glory being put on display. Majesty, his unparalleled greatness, or as John Kelly described it, God's awful transcendence. Might, strength, and ability to do all things. And as the psalmist has affirmed for us, remember in verse 68 of Psalm 119, the Lord is good and does good. How? How does the Lord do good? Because he is mighty. He is mighty. Authority, the absolute and sovereign right to rule. So once more, and it is to God that Jude rightfully ascribes glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time, now, and forever. And I especially enjoy Jude's spanning of time here. This is, again, maybe a small element, maybe an element that we could pass over quickly, but I think it's so invaluable. So I want to just draw some brief attention to it. The span of time here and how it relates to God's exaltation, that's a common element, not a, not a necessary, but a common element of a doxology. It has some frame of to what extent do these praises go? Uh, now and forever, that's a very common one. But Jude does something different before now and forever. And it reminds me of a small but for me, indispensable adaption I made to a working chart that I used to express the sweep of Scripture's testimony of God's redemptive plan, a chart that goes all the way from creation through the plan of God and redemptive history all the way to the culmination of Christ's return and the, the glorified state. And it's a chart that I've mildly adapted in a, in a variety of ways when framing a larger view of the Scriptures, and I consistently use it when sharing the Gospels. It provides the necessary context of man's need for a redeemer by framing the larger picture from creation to glory, including the fall of man and the unfolding of God's plan from promising a redeemer all the way to the finished work and ultimate exaltation of the redeemer. That's part of how I evangelize. I think you need the full picture to really properly appreciate it. But what was implicitly present, but for me glaringly absent in the chart was the pre-creation glory of God. The fact that God did not create out of a, a relational uh, lack. So if we start with God created, which is Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. We, we appreciate that. That's right. But God preceded his creation. And there was a glory that God demonstrated. That's a testimony throughout the scriptures. And so the fact that God did not create out of a relational lack, out of boredom, or even from a need to receive more glory, he created and creation did not satisfy a need that nagged the Almighty throughout eternity past when it was forever and only the triune God perfectly satisfied in his own glory. And yet, God spoke. And he created the heavens and the earth. And when he spoke and instituted what became the first 24-hour day, he also created time and a beginning for this natural creation and that which would inhabit it. He created the now element of which Jude speaks. And Jude states that it is to our only God and Savior that we attribute what is already perfectly and fully his, namely glory, majesty, might, and authority. And we do this now as now is where we are, and he extends the exaltation of the Lord into the unending future. And while we do not have the capacity to fully appreciate or understand this, as all that we know and cherish, it diminishes, it dies, it fades, it goes away, it ends. We still have an idea of future and even an idea concept of a forever future, but 
as I stated, that's not enough. We have to have a view to God's exaltation in not only the future, the present, the future, but also forever in the past. We must have a view to the eternal past or that which forever was, namely the glorious triune God to whom we ascribe glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time. He didn't say that when he created and he spoke and he did all these things, now to him be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time, but always has been, always is, and always will be. So again, while not having the capacity to fully appreciate or understand this expression of God's fitting exaltation, we must remember that his glory pre-existed creation and it's not dependent on creation. Therefore, when man fell, it was man's glory that was diminished and not God's, whose glory would now be put on display in but another magnificent way through redemption and even judgment. A redemption and judgment in which the righteous are kept. You see what he's driving at? A redemption in which the righteous are kept safely in him and the ungodly are kept as Jude and Peter have said, for their own suitable end. So with this in view, we're going to come to a close, and you, you know the cue now, don't you? The Bible's closing. He's wrapping up two to ten minutes, hopefully two. And we finish with the realization that while Jude was redirected from his original intent of writing about our common salvation, what did he ultimately do? He ultimately did just that, right? I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, and he had to struggle to write about contending for the faith, and yet he ultimately did what he set out to do, and so much more. He filled out the excellencies of God in the preservation and care of his church, whom he has called us to contend for and whom he will keep. And as we consider these matters, I think it is most fitting that Judas finished with a doxology that has left this to be his final word for us. This is, this is the end. This is the last word of Jude. And as we now close, I'll finish with reading Jude's doxology, a modified version of it, one last time, after which I will pray, and then we're going to sing something. We're going to sing a song that I've specifically requested, Majesty, Worship His Majesty. And I requested that song, and Matt was very generous in honoring my request, and I requested it for this reason. Because while I was laboring to finish this precious letter, I could hear the, the belting voice of a beloved uh, pastoral figure, a professor I had in Bible college. And he would have a singing class. That wasn't all that unusual. There's some professors, pastors that love to sing. Some are, um, I don't know if it's double threat or triple threat, singing pastor. Um, I think if you throw dancing in there, it's at least a triple threat. And Frank is a triple threat, but um, yes, at least three. But we would sing in class and he would have us sing. And, and this was indisputably his favorite song majesty worship his majesty he would sing it so loud we're in a large auditorium this was one of the classes that your entire class your entire uh, uh, freshman class would be in at the same time so well over 100 200 of us at small class um, but he would sing and it would just echo and carry over all the rest of us and we would sing but boy he just carried over us and at the time it was striking almost overwhelming as he would just sing majesty Worship, and he would sing it, but just belting it. But after 25 years, and having spent a season in Judah, I'm beginning to understand why he would sing it so enthusiastically, so loudly, because he was a worshiper. He had walked many years, both in this natural life and with the Lord, and he understood the hard work and satisfaction of contending for the faith. He had done it. He had been found faithful, and he knew of the Lord's majesty. He knew this in ways that I hope we will come to better understand. 
that we also will come to appreciate that the Lord is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, that he is indeed the only God, our Savior, through, Christ, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that to him belong all glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jude's letter, which was so very brief, but disproportionately impactful on our thinking, our conduct, and ultimately, as expressed here, our worship. How can we labor through from introduction to finish and not be provoked as Jude was to erupt in worshipful praise to our great and glorious God who is able and will accomplish that which he has commanded and set us apart to do. What's disconcerting is that we might miss that, though, that we might affirm that with whimpering thanksgivings and simple expressions of praise. Lord, you've commanded us to do some difficult things, You've called us to do things that it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost time. It's going to cost energy, relationships. It's going to be distressing at times. It's going to be heartbreaking. It's going to provoke confusion. Not because you author confusion, but when sin is introduced amongst people, there is going to be confusion. And so we're going to have to wrestle and fight and contend, seek to be found faithful, and we're going to have to diligently watch ourselves. We're going to have to be mindful of those who would come in to assault your bride. And then we're going to have to be diligent to do our work in keeping ourselves. And then the painful work of having mercy on those whom we see and walk with and love who are going to struggle with doubting. Some are going to drift from doubting to more severe uh, expressions of being uh, lured in by those who have crept in to draw disciples away for themselves and and worse yet, there's going to be some that, that have all but forfeited the clarity and affirmation of their testimony. So it's not just a kindness that we finished with a, a reminder that you are able and that you will accomplish these things and that to you belongs glory, but it is a, a fitting capstone of worshipful response because indeed you are able you will accomplish these things and you are always forever have been ever will be deserving of glory so lord help us help us to to come back with arms wide and say we don't quite can't quite measure this but it's it's this big and a lot more and then as we walk and as we advance in our sojourning and and progress in our contending for the faith may we May it show itself in tangible ways. Again, I think about the belting out of majesty. It sounded different than an 18-year-old kid that thought that they were being faithful and contending for the faith and probably doing what, well, what we think we know to do versus a man who seasoned in faith and faithfulness and a delighting in you. Lord, that's what we want to be. That's where we want to go. And so, Lord, would you work that work in us and find us faithful unto the end that your name indeed would be made much of. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.